0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
2: the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with
1: Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
3: at Bloomberg's world headquarters in New York. Ed, he's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we're going to talk the state of hiring in Silicon Valley after yet another blowout U.S. payrolls report. And we'll bring you the latest information from the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried as the FTX co-founder Gary Wang testifies that he and Bankman-Fried committed a multi-billion dollar fraud with customer funds. Plus, we'll wrap up the latest from Google's antitrust trial and bring you a new report that shows the US is warning the EU on its AI regulation and competition first though let's check in on these markets because look blowout jobs number we see the ramifications in the bond market but actually tech manages to push on through after initial knee jerk reaction to that 336000 jobs report we actually see the nasdaq managing to push on higher 1.2% higher as we close out the week us 10 year though selling off or up some four basis points once again we're he- hitting like multi decade highs here since 2007 4.76 is where we trade bitcoin actually on the higher side so a little bit of desire to get into the risk on the back of some of these numbers. But let's have a little look at what's happening in terms of the micro, the individual stock movers in the world of technology. PDD just on a tear. Is this Tmu that's calling? Is this the fact that everyone's getting their Halloween outfits for a cheaper price point? We are seeing it outperform over the last few well months and weeks and currently on the day up 8.8% best performer on the NASDAQ 100. ADM as well also happening, helping really offset the NASDAQ initial falter on the jobs data. We're up some 4%. So a lot of the chip makers managing to push on the higher side. Nvidia also help, helping on the points perspective and I'm looking at Tesla though on the downside it had been off more than well 2% at one point we're now off by eight tenths of a percent this is they once again cut prices particularly to the Model Y the Model 3 up to 225 Hundred, So 2,250 being pulled down in terms of a price point, just keeping on pushing that. Maybe as we see the bond market sell off, let's have a little look at what's happening though more broadly in the macro data because maybe Elon's reacting to that. Jobs, hiring, specifically in the tech sector. We want to be bringing in Daniel Zhao, of course, who's lead economist, senior manager at Glassdoor. And ultimately, Daniel, we are seeing what has been a focus on, of course, a an issue of hiring within the technology space. And I'm interested as to whether or not that's really being borne out from a macro perspective. I think we're still waiting for our guest to be brought on, so we'll give him a moment to be sat. But we have been seeing, of course, what has been pretty buoyant numbers overall. We're seeing the fact that we are unemployment rate holding at 3.8% after a surge of unemployed re enter this jobs market, participation participation remaining unchanged at 62.8%. We want to dig into some of the areas that have seen some growth. I'm looking at hospitality and leisure, education, healthcare sectors, which have really been leading some of these rebounds. But for us in the technology sector, we've just been talking about well letting go of people, and now more broadly, Daniel, we're seeing well a focus on maybe people starting to rehire in very specific spaces like AI. What do you see in your sectors?
0: Well, we definitely are seeing that the tech sector, the way that softness has manifested has shifted over the year because at the start of this year, we saw this big wave of layoffs at companies, large and small in the tech sector. But now it's more about that softness and hiring the difficulty in some of those laid off workers from finding new jobs. And in fact, this is something we see reflected in how employees are talking about the tech sector. We've mm-hmm. seen that employee confidence in the tech sector as measured on Glassdoor uh, is actually below 50%. That means that under 50% of tech employees actually have a positive business outlook for their employers. That's not really a great situation to be in for the industry.
3: Uh, Can you give demographics on that, regions on that, the kinds of people who are nervous here? Well,
0: generally speaking, uh, entry-level workers tend to be a little bit less confident than, say, executives. And when you think about that, that totally makes sense. But I think one interesting cut of that is actually middle managers have seen a pretty dramatic decline in their business confidence as well. I think part of that might be because you look at uh, companies that are cutting costs. Well, a lot of that pressure falls on middle managers who have to enact these cost-cutting measures at the same time doing more with less as they try to get uh, those costs under control.
3: How much is flexibility or a lack thereof bearing weight at the moment it's interesting that we're worried about participation rates in women we've actually seen that recover now perhaps pull back a little bit there's a lot of talk within the tech sector in particular that we want you back in the office and that impacts certain people more than others
0: Well, definitely we know that flexibility is a really appealing feature for jobs beyond the tech sector for really everybody. And of course, it manifests in different ways. It might be flexible work arrangements in terms of location or in terms of hours, but it is absolutely something that we see employees care a lot about, job seekers care a lot about, uh, but we are also seeing that a lot of employers are pulling back on those options as they uh, really try to get costs under control and try to be as productive as possible. But on the flip side, you know, the, the evidence, I think is mixed there. There are a lot of employers who are getting by just fine in a flexible uh, in those flexible work arrangements. So it's really up to employers to figure out what the best way is to manage their workforce.
3: Now, we ha- have seen really the oxygen within technology space just been sucked out of the room by artificial intelligence. What is happening from a training perspective? What is happening from job openings and whether or not companies can fill those job openings for AI within their own labor force as it exists or are they having to reshuffle the benches a little bit here?
0: I think that's a great question. I think it's a little bit early to say because all of these new generative AI tools are are pretty new, and a lot of companies still haven't figured out exactly how to use them. They haven't figured out what their strategy should be for using and experimenting with these tools, so I think right now we're just seeing a lot of experimentation and there aren't really a lot of firm plans in place, but I think that training is a really great way that employers can um, reward the loyal employees that they have by giving them opportunities for career growth and skill development um, and really get access to a a pool of talent that uh, offers them a lot.
3: Wage growth slowing from a macro perspective in the jobs data, 4.2% year over year. What are wages looking like in the tech sector?
0: Well, in the tech sector, we are seeing that wages aren't necessarily falling, but they're more stagnant year over year. And I think that also it's important to keep in mind that uh, compensation is not just about your base salary, Mm -hmm. right? It includes, especially in the tech sector, it includes bonuses, it includes equity, and that is a place where we have seen a little bit of a pullback. So it's not necessarily that people are getting their bonuses cut or their equity packages cut, but when they're looking for a new job, well, maybe the size of the package that they can actually demand is not as large as it might have been a year or two ago.
3: What signals now do you look to? Like you're measuring sentiment, which seems to be on the downside. Where do you look next? Because many in the macro perspective are thinking this jobs market has to eventually start to cool, even though it defies that every single month, it feels like.
0: Well, I think it is important to see that marriage of hard and soft data together, because we do see that the hard data is looking really healthy for the job market, in fact, almost shockingly healthy uh, compared to what we were thinking coming into the year. But I think it is really important to look at that sentiment data, especially as we look at how employees feel, because who knows businesses better than their employees who are on the front lines every day, who are interacting with customers, actually seeing how the business is operating. That's why we think we, you can't discount these these soft sentiment indicators
3: from the middle management layer. Daniel, it's great to have some time with you. Thank you for the expertise, particularly in this sector. Daniel Zhao of Glassdoor, we thank him. Meanwhile, coming up, no, we're going to unpack the latest developments from Google's antitrust trial. Rebecca Allensworth, professor at Vanderbilt University Law School, going to be joining us. Speaking of antitrust, we are watching shares of Microsoft and indeed Activision. Remember, next week, the CMA, we're likely to get that announcement as to whether or not this deal has been rectified enough for them to allow it to go through through. In fact, we understand reporting from The Verge saying that Microsoft certainly thinks that this deal will be completed as soon as next week. And we understand that there was, today was the last day that they could get any comments as to the CMA's viewpoints on this particular deal. We're trading higher from New York. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly.
4: Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.
3: Great bit of reporting, Anna Bloomberg, today that apparently new analysis from the US State Department is warning the EU policymakers about its proposal for generative AI regulation, saying that, look, it's too vague, could foster in favoritism for big tech firms. Anna Edgerton, one of the key reporters on this, Seattle bureau chief for Bloomberg News. And Anna, what is the argument here that this head-of-the-curve regulation that the EU is getting in before other countries, it seems, seems to favor big tech even more than small?
5: Yeah, these are really interesting documents. You know, some of the arguments we'd heard before, but the level of detail in these documents was really interesting to see the kind of exchange between policymakers in the US and their counterparts in Europe. Now, the sources that we spoke with said that this was offered in a spirit of cooperation and alignment of values. This was not meant to criticize the EU. When it comes to writing regulation for AI, it's really important that even the definitions of like what artificial intelligence is, what do we mean by foundation models? What do we mean by generative AI? that those definitions are aligned so that whatever policy is passed in the European Union can then be kind of working together with ever, with whatever policy is eventually passed in the United States and that it's even possible for companies to comply with both. The AI Act, I mean many had pushed back against it
3: because it wasn't just about the underlying foundational models and how they're built but then how they're applied as well. The, the original idea was that it would just be within their applications and when it's risky or not. But now they seem to want to have transparency about what's within the foundational model, how they built it. Is that the key issue of sort of competition here? Is it because it's
5: going to be so expensive to be able to give that sort of transparency? Yeah, there are a lot of issues. And like you said, it's really interesting to see how this conversation in Europe develops because the AI Act was pretty much ready to go at the beginning of this year. It was focused on the riskiness of that end use, like you said. This is a risk-based approach, which the U.S. supports. But then with the release of ChatGPT, another consumer-facing AI products, there was really a kind of growing concern that these, the application of these tools wasn't enough to regulate, that there needs to be some kind of uh, regulatory rule Rules for the way these models are even developed in the first place, and that's where we started to see a lot of pushback from companies who initially, I think, were were pretty open to the AI Act. So, you know, they're open to this risk-based approach, but what they don't want to do is to have regulators in Europe saying how they can or can't develop the underlying models. And that's where we see the United States kind of saying, you know, some of the, the way that this is written could cause problems for innovation for the little guys who are trying to catch up with some of the bigger companies that are have these models. So, you know, we know kind of how this was offered from the United States, but what we'll be watching really closely is how this is received in Europe.
3: Anna Edgerton, thanks so much for bringing us this great story. We really appreciate it. Meanwhile, look, it's the same names that keep coming up time and time again. And of course, who's building a foundational model? Google. And who's been under other antitrust viewpoints, shall we say, and potential regulation right here in the US? Alphabet. Alphabet or Google. Let's just revisit what's been happening throughout this week. The trials that's underway, the assessment of also what's happening with Amazon too. Rebecca Allensworth joins us, professor at Vanderbilt University Law School. Boy, busy time in the world of antitrust. And we all knew it would come eventually. It all seems to have arrived at once like buses. I'm interested, Rebecca, on what you think about the Alphabet case in particular. We've had some really phenomenal, in terms of kind of shocking pieces of revelations coming from none other than CEOs of rival companies like Satya Nadella.
6: That's right. So the big news out of the Google antitrust trial this week is the testimony of Satya Nadella. Um, he testified about what it was like to compete with Google and painted a very bleak picture. And um, so doing, sort of seemed to paint a little bit of a bleak picture of his own company's ability to compete. So he must have been feeling like he was walking a fine line there. But his point was that, you know, we could we could approach Apple with the same billions and billions of dollars, and they were never going to take it. They were always going to go with Google, and it's basically impossible to compete with Google on search.
3: But therefore, does that play into Google's hand and at least its argument, well, Apple's argument has always been Google's a better product. It's not that they're just too big, it's that they're too, that much better that's right but the rest of the testimony
6: um, over the past few weeks a lot of it has focused on this idea of scale and how scale is essential to build that uh, better search product so part of why Bing was willing to pay as much as it was to be the default on Apple was that they wanted to get the scale it was worth it worth it to them to lose some money on that deal in the short term if they could have the user data to build a product that could really compete with Google and so the question in this case one way of framing it is you know is Google better because it's big or is Google big because it's better? Google wants you to think the latter. They want you to think that they won and they're big because they have a better product. And I think the government is trying to tell a little bit of a different story, saying you kind of have to be big to be good. You ought to let other companies have a
3: shot at becoming big. And I suppose this does push us forward to... A, an era in which perhaps Alphabet's Google is under some competitive threat because of generative AI, because we're starting to see, well, ChatGPT, OpenAI's relationship with Microsoft maybe bear fruit, maybe bring people across to a different kind of search product. But more broadly, what did you make, for example, of the reporting around the AI Act, the worries that the smaller companies might not be able to compete with the big companies? How much of this just is a never-ending conversation when it comes to size and power? So
6: absolutely, any kind of regulation, Well, unfortunately, most regulation, we won't say any regulation, but a lot of regulation does benefit big companies in the sense that compliance is expensive. It's expensive to comply with the laws, and sometimes that's something a small company can't do. It's another reason why being big is important and why we need to allow other companies besides behemoths like like Google, at least in the search space, to get that kind of size and scale. What's a little funny about this, of course, is Microsoft is not a small company
3: by, by any measure, but it is in terms of market share for search. Yeah, you've had the smaller players like DuckDuckGo, for example, giving evidence to CEO there as well. And interesting revelations as to who might have bought who at what point. Rebecca, moving on to what's also been front and center for us has been the FTC's analyzation of Amazon in the marketplace. What's also interesting is the CMA over in the UK also looking into... Well, the interpretation of cloud and how Ofcom has felt that perhaps there's not much competition in that space either. Can you just paint a picture of how regulation is evolving here, UK, EU? Is everyone fighting the same fight here?
6: Um, everyone is fighting the same fight in the sense that everyone's recognizing the market power of these platforms, the way that technology is changing fast, and therefore the competitive conditions are, are changing fast, and wanting to be adaptive in their regulation to foster competition in all these new uh, areas. The suit against Amazon is, uh, represents the third major strike uh, by the government against a major American platform monopoly, and I guess the last one left is Apple.
3: Indeed. And I think to that point, when you're drilling in on the likes of Amazon and Amazon also getting into other people's competitive space, of course, it's becoming an advertiser in and of itself and being able to draw that away from perhaps some of the social media giants out there. How do you see... Ultimately, these sorts of inquisitions going, do you think in any way that the FTC will win out and bear fruit, or will they ultimately not even need to win this case to change the direction of the way we think about monopolies and and power and regulation?
6: Both things are possibly true. So first of all, it's too early to say that the FTC and the DOJ's attempt to brain in big tech has been unsuccessful. They've had some disappointing losses in court, but they've also had some small wins. And it's also only been a couple of years since they've been trying to do this. We look back at the 70s when, in retrospect, antitrust turned on a dime. But actually, it really took many years for that to crystallize. And so I do think it's too early to say. And I think as far as the the long-run prospects for these these imperatives, I think that it depends on the political will. Law is not uh, impervious to what the people want. And I think people are starting to be more skeptical of market power by major tech monopolies.
3: They certainly are. And in that respect, we were all, of course, aware that the FTC investigation of Amazon is going to take, well, at least 18 months even to start. Do you think the timelines here are in any way in in an investor's mindset, something that they should be thinking about? Well, you sort of
6: said it before when you said you have to win to change to change the situation. And, and I think that the delay is kind of a part of that explanation. So yes, it may not be true that you file a suit and then, you know, six months later, there's a resolution and you have an outcome. In fact, it might take so long that the competitive conditions change and the thing that you were suing about isn't really true anymore because the markets moved on. That was true about the Microsoft case. It took too long to really allow Netscape to survive. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a deterrent effect. Yeah. If these companies know going forward, going into their business dealings, um, then
3: th- that they're yeah. going to... Uh, so- sorry. Oh, Rebecca, I'm going to have to end you there because we've just got warning that the president is walking out. Rebecca Allensworth there. Let's now go to President Biden to on the jobs office,
2: We've created 13.9 million new jobs. You heard me say it before, I'm going to keep saying it. My dad had an expression. He said, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it. Well, 336,000 more Americans, if they have children, can say that to their children and mean it. The unemployment rate has stayed below 4% for 20 months in a row, the longest stretch in 50 years. We've achieved a 70-year low in unemployment rate for women record lows in unemployment for African-Americans and Hispanic workers and people with disabilities, folks who have been left behind in previous recoveries and left behind for too long. We have the highest share of working-age Americans in the workforce in 20 years. and It's no accident. It's dynamics. We're growing the economy from the middle out, the bottom up, not the top down. And inflation is coming down at the same time. It's down 60% since last summer. Core inflation was just 2.2% over the past three months. And now we have the lowest inflation of any major economy in the world. Today we're celebrating National Manufacturing Day. We didn't name it that, it was already National Manufacturing Day, but it seems appropriate. I can think of no better way to mark the occasion than to thank the 13 million Americans who are in manufacturing jobs as we speak. They're restoring our pride, making things in America. And today I want to highlight that of those 13 million manufacturing jobs, 815,000 of those jobs were created since I took office, twice as many as the previous administration. And report, what we learned earlier this week, that spending on construction for new factories being built to generate more economic growth and jobs hit an all-time high last month. Folks, Bidenomics is about investing in America and investing in American workers. And businesses are investing more in manufacturing than ever before, on bringing the supply chains home. Before the pandemic, supply chains was a phrase most people didn't even associate with, didn't think much about. And, uh, but today, after a few uh, delays in availability of parts and products everyone has known about, they know why it's so important. My economic plan is bringing supply chains home and investing in industries of the future so we can make things in America again with American workers. We're creating good jobs in communities all across the country, including in places that have been left behind for the last, in some cases, 20 years, because the factories they used to work at for years and years shut down, leaving them with no options. No jobs in that community. All over the Midwest and all over the Northeast. That under Bidenomics, you won't have to leave home now to get a good job. I don't know how many times I heard and out on the road people saying, my kid came up to me, got a decent education in the state, came up to me and said, Mom, I gotta leave. No jobs. No jobs. Well, you're gonna be able to find a good job close to home more and more all across America. We're also making sure the jobs we're creating offer workers a free and fair right, if they choose, to join a union, to form a union. Bidenomics is leading to surge in unionized workers exercising their collective bargaining rights. For example, our, our clean school bus program under the bipartisan infrastructure law is replacing dirty diesel buses with clean electric buses so children getting on and off those buses can bring clean air, not diesel fuel. We're encouraging the companies building those buses to allow their employees to unionize if the employees choose. And it's working. We saw in Georgia when at Blue, workers at Bluebird, the electric school bus manufacturing company that's receiving federal funds, voted to unionize because that was their choice. The Treasury Department laid out recently in a major report that unions and collective bargaining are good for the economy overall. They help raise wages not only for the workers in that factory, but for everyone, whether or not they're a union, whether or not you belong to a union. And they also increase, uh, 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 excuse me, they also increase corporate uh, growth. And today's job report is just another example of what it looks like when we focus on building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down, while bringing deficits down at the same time. You know, just this summer, I signed a strong bipartisan law where I shook hands with the former Speaker, and uh, we passed in the House and the Senate as well, to cut spending by $1 trillion over the next 10 years. Unfortunately, last weekend, Republican House members decided they were going to put that progress in jeopardy. Instead of honoring that commitment they made, they once again brought us to the brink of a government shutdown, creating unnecessary instability and risk in order to secure more extreme cuts in programs that help working Americans and seniors. Cuts that would have hurt everyone from, uh, hurt U.S. manufacturing, that would have stymied the pay of military people, a whole range of things. They tried cutting funding by 30% for small businesses, which are growing under our administration for local manufacturers, for manufacturing extension partnership program that that helps small and medium sized manufacturers attract and train workers and grow their businesses. But we stopped them. Quite frankly, I'm sick and tired. Republicans in the House saying they want to cut the deficit when all they really want to do is once again cut taxes for the very wealthy and big corporations, which will only add to the deficit. When I was able to cut the federal debt by $1.7 trillion over that first two years, well, remember what we were talking about, those 50 corporations that made $40 billion weren't paying a penny in taxes. Well, guess what? We made them pay 30 percent, 15 percent in taxes, 15 percent. Nowhere near what they should pay. And guess what? We're able to pay for everything and we end up with an actual surplus. You know, it's not about, <clears throat> it's not what the economy needs right now, more tax cuts for the wealthy. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We've cut the deficit by over $1 trillion since we've taken office. The laws that I sign will cut it by another $1 trillion over the next 10 years. And my budget would cut it by another $2.5 trillion over 10 years. Here's the deal, the federal debt went up by 50% under my predecessor, in part because he passed a $2 trillion tax cut, overwhelmingly skewed to the very wealthy and large corporations. I believe we should be reducing the deficit by making sure that the wealthy and large corporations can just pay their fair share, I'm not going to pay 90%, just pay their fair share by cutting wasteful spending on special interests, like big oil, all the money they made and paid so little in taxes. Big pharma, same thing. You know, we just gave the American public a real gift in terms of, not a gift, but fairness in terms of what they have to pay for insulin and what they're going to have to pay for other things. Well, guess what? That, always, that also cut... The-
3: President Biden making comments on the jobs data. Of course, example, a blowout number of 336,000 jobs being added. Notable, that participation rates perhaps varying between men and women. So we keep an eye on what President Biden is saying, and of course he's turning his attention to tax rates as well, particularly for corporates. Let's turn our attention now to the trial of Sam Juan Fried. FTX co-founder Gary Wang said he and Bangun-Fried committed a multi-billion dollar fraud with customer funds that led to the cryptocurrency exchange's collapse when he took the stand to testify. Please to say that Bloomberg's Hannah Miller has been, well, across this story for the last several years, but also now as we see this what's going to be a six-week trial come to bear here in New York. What did you make of Gary Wang in particular? I mean, they certainly didn't make eye contact.
7: It's very damning testimony. Uh, Gary Wang has laid out um, multiple times that Sam Bankman-Greed was a guiding force in terms of setting up special privileges for Alameda Research as an FTX customer. I mean, the advantages Alameda had are
3: absolutely stunning. Billions that they had basically as a credit line is the accusation here and ultimately that really the defense argument that sang and free couldn't be across everything in alameda research that was the la- the role of the ceo seemed to be being undermined here
7: that's correct yeah alameda research had a sixty five billion dollar line of credit no other customer had a line of credit uh, over a billion dollars. So this is uh, pretty insane. They were also allowed to have a negative balance on their accounts. they were allowed to withdraw. Uh, Their accounts wouldn't be liquidated if their crypto bets went sour. Um, And it seems like Sam Bankman-Fried, according to Gary Wing's testimony, was well aware of this and people were trusting his judgment in, in terms of setting up these advantages for Alameda.
3: Has there been anyone that's come a little bit more towards Sam Magman-Fried's defense here in terms of who's been giving evidence? It was notable that other long-term friends, people he'd been at university with, then did come on board and work and perhaps sort of try to echo that he wasn't someone who was flamboyant. Even though there was a lot of money being spent on a penthouse, he wasn't spending it lavishly on himself.
7: Yes, Adam Yudidia testified yesterday. Uh, He's a former friend of Sam Bankman Fried's. Uh, He had worked for FTX. Um, He testified that Sam didn't live this ostentatious lifestyle, that he wore regular clothes. But I believe that's offset by the millions of dollars in real estate purchases that
3: FTX made and the the luxe life employees had in the Bahamas. Hannah Miller, great podcast on the extraordinary dealings of FTX and and downfall and I'm sure you'll continue to be an avid viewer and listener in on all that's happening in the trial here in New York. We thank you so much for running us through what happened yesterday. Meanwhile, turning to another story that we've been following, a phenomenal one in terms of the world of diversity, Fearless Fund. It's a VC Foundation's grant program for businesses run by black women. Now, it has been prohibited from closing its application window on September 30th or then from picking a winner until further ordered by a court. This is following the lawsuit from the American Alliance for Equal Rights. It argues that the program by the Fearless Fund violates Section 1981, which bans racial discrimination in contracting. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Kelsey Butler to break down what is a complex but far-reaching argument that's happening out in Georgia right now. Ultimately, the argument here is that you cannot level up in terms of allocation of capital here by only giving money, certain funds, to women of color. What is their argument in particular against Fearless Fund here?
8: Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, um, the uh, group behind this says that this violates the Civil Rights Act of 1866, that essentially by targeting a specific group, though they are underrepresented, it leaves out other groups, specifically on the basis of race. And I think something interesting to remember here is the person behind the organization that's suing, um, Edward Bloom, who, you know, the name might not be familiar, but is a conservative activist who uh, was involved in the case against Harvard. And as we know, the Supreme Court ultimately uh, banned the use of, um, banned race conscious admissions in colleges. So um, affirmative action is no longer the um, reality when it comes to college admissions. And certainly that win, um, I think, emboldened um, him and probably other conservative activists that, um, you know, have
3: an issue with diversity programs. This has got to just be one of Quite a few funds that have been set up to allocate money to minorities, whether it's to entrepreneurs who are women, diverse entrepreneurs in many ways. What is the far-reaching effect to something that is going on for one particular fund at the moment? I think this is certainly going to have a
8: chilling effect. You know, we're not only seeing this play out in courts, but we're seeing politicians dive in and specifically target and, um, you know, name check companies. And so what that is doing and what I'm hearing a lot about is that companies don't want to put a target on their own backs by loudly talking about their diversity programs, by um, even really keeping ones in place that they already have. They're now, you know, running those by lawyers and seeing are we in any way um, potentially running afoul of the law or going to um, you know shine a spotlight on what we're doing
3: thank you for shining a spotlight on it with your reporting Kelsey Butler really setting up a, a situation here that many a VC and indeed corporate allocator are now considering let's dig in a little bit deeper Joey Mack is also at the front of this he's the CEO of Chicago Blend it's a nonprofit working to advance diversity equity inclusion in the Chicago region's bench capital industry and Joey, this does have far-reaching effects. What are your questions coming inbound for you at the moment from diverse founders, diverse VCs who are now worrying about some of the funds perhaps that they've raised from corporate America?
9: Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, Certainly, we were shocked by the brazenness of this lawsuit, but not at all surprised because we know this is part of a broader push to diminish diversity efforts in business. Um, Certainly, there are lots of questions coming in and around, you know, what does this mean for me, for my firm? But at the end of the day, suing firms like Fearless Fund does nothing to move the industry forward. Uh, It only reinforces existing inequities within ventures. So, you know, our message to those firms that are investing in underrepresented founders is to continue doing the work. This is going to be a long legal battle. Uh, It's just the beginning stages of it. So um, while that's playing out in the courts, um, we're encouraging firms to continue investing in underrepresented founders.
3: Now, we do know that the statistics are pretty awful when it comes to diverse allocation. I mean, ultimately, what is it? Less than 2% of overall capital deployed is in women-led startups. Black founders in the US getting even less than 1% of total venture. But to play the other side here, is it right that you should have affirmative action, that you should have certain funds allocated to only minority-led businesses to help with leveling up, to help with equitable distribution of capital? Is there another way of doing this, Joey?
9: You know, at the end of the day, having more more diversity among the investor class will enable more uh, diverse or more checks to be written to uh, underrepresented founders so you know we know that people tend to associate with and invest in other people who look like them so you know for us we look at what does diversity look like across the venture ecosystem across uh, the the ecosystem of people who are making those investments and we've seen that because of the severe underrepresentation of specifically women and people of color we're seeing that that translate to who's actually getting checks. You know, ultimately um, if we can get more ha- more dollars in the hands of underrepresented founders, they'll be able to uh, build companies, penetrate new markets that a lot of investors aren't currently looking at, and ultimately build companies that will be durable and that can serve totally different uh, segments of the population that are being overlooked right now.
5: Joey,
3: we're looking at Chicago blend backers, Baird being one of them, Textiles Manifold. Are any institutions, and I think of the Fearless Fund, for example, that has had money, multi-million dollar allocations from MasterCard, from Costco, from Bank of America, how many of these institutional companies and institutions are are worried about supporting non-for-profits like yours, funds like Fearless Funds?
9: Well, I can speak about the the companies and the the corporations that have been supporting us. I think they support us because they share our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. They see the business case for why we need to continue investing in underrepresented founders, and you know they've continued to support our work. So you know, although this chilling effect that your previous speaker mentioned is certainly very real, you know, our message to them as well as to other funds is we need to remind ourselves of why we're doing this work. Um, Ultimately, we need to focus on getting more dollars, more venture finance dollars in the hands of underrepresented founders, and that's ultimately how we're gonna build a more equitable and competitive tech ecosystem.
3: So when someone is looking for advice, when they're looking at what's occurring in Georgia, when they're seeing what's happening with the Fearless Fund, what are you saying to VCs that do have a mandate as it stands to just allocate to women of color, people of color, diverse founders more broadly?
9: Yeah, well, you know, people are definitely fired up. And right now we need to be educated about um, the legal issues and implications at hand. So that's where Chicago Blend has been focusing our energy. But we also need to be prepared to speak up and stand up against this broader back flash to diversity, whether it's in venture capital or in business more broadly. So again, our advice to firms um, that invest in underrepresented founders is to continue doing the work. That's ultimately how we're going to bring about positive change.
3: Are you seeing enough institutions speaking up?
9: Um, well again the the organizations that we work with um, they've been very supportive of our approach to you know increasing diversity um but i i do think that you know it would be great for um, um for the business community to remember why they are investing in, Uh, in diversity efforts more broadly. Several of the organizations that we work with, they make investments internally as well as externally to to support diversity. And our message to them is, is please continue to double down on that.
3: Joey Mack. Great to have some time with you. Thank you so much, CEO of Chicago Blend. We really appreciate some of the expertise coming from the advice you're currently giving. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to talk about cyber. MGM says its recent computer hack into its casino hotels is going to cost a big time. We'll have all the details next. Meanwhile, look, you've got to keep an eye on some shares that are on the move today. Amazon, we look at, yeah, we were already discussing some of the regulatory overhang, but on the higher side today, up more than eight tenths of a percent. Interesting, they're going to be focusing in on those satellites, of course. They've got two test satellites to be going into lower orbit today on a rocket, we understand, at 2pm ET. We keep an eye of tune of that. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology.
4: Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
3: And it's just said that the recent computer hack that shut down many services at its casino hotels will reduce its third quarter profit by about $100 million, and the company also incurred almost $10 million in costs fighting the attack, with the most related to technology consulting services, legal fees, it's all according to a filing. Now cybersecurity insurance should cover most of the costs, MGM said, although the full impact has yet to be determined. For more, we're pleased to welcome Jay Ballou, Chief Security Officer at cybersecurity firm Rapid7, who is trying to analyse ultimately the costs for businesses here. I can imagine in a macro environment, companies have been reticent to spend on things that they feel are extra. But is cybersecurity one area that they pull back on, and ultimately does that end up hurting
10: them in the longer term? I think absolutely, if they're not spending enough preventatively, and you know, there is a rough number that we've like tossed around in Europe for quite a long time, which is 10% of your total IT spend is what you should reserve for your cybersecurity spend on making sure that all the things that you integrate into your networks and systems also have this component for cybersecurity, whether that's monitoring and detection or prevention of vulnerabilities or, you know, all of the other kind of remediation stuff that you would need to have on hand in order to combat such an incident. Incident and you know, have a certain pot reserved for outside counsel as well as forensic support, but most companies aren't doing that preventative stuff, and then they wind up being caught off guard during an actual incident.
3: We've had so many headlines It's MGM, whether it's the ongoing fallout for Clorox, which is again is trying to really lay bare how much this is going to cost there from their own cybersecurity hack. Is this? Something that people, our regulators are trying to eye, that ultimately we're seeing carrots put in place of like, hey, the upside of not getting a cyber attack, but
10: also a stick put in place. Absolutely. So from an SEC perspective, as you know, there was a new SEC disclosure uh, for cybersecurity incidents, and it's about reporting material incidents within four days of you know knowledge of the company that they were actually occurred and that they are indeed material. And this is in order to help shareholders make better decisions about the companies that they've invested in. I would argue, though, this is remarkably difficult to do for a lot of these companies. Mm. First, in terms of determining what is a material incident incident. In the fog of the actual incident, that's really hard to do. So that four days is an ambitious, aspirational kind of thing that you know while you're actually doing all of this you know, response to an incident that you can understand the material impact as well. So that's going to be difficult. And I think the Clorox example is going to be a sort of poster child for a lot of people in the cybersecurity industry who are wrestling with this because you do see that Clorox is going to report a decline in their profits because of this incident. Not only the direct cost impact, but also the fact that they couldn't stock shelves with their product, mm. and then subsequently will need to report to shareholders what the consequences of this cybersecurity incident was. And coincidentally, it was the same group that attacked MGM. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the groups, uh, Scattered Spider? How, how, and what are they bringing to bear that is so upending certain companies? Well, they're clearly interested in profit, or at least that's what they claim to be interested in. So they are opportunistic attackers from that perspective, who are looking for someone who will pay their fees. They're working together with a ransomware group that was formerly uh, or associated with the Russians, Alpha V. And what they're causing is an enormous amount of impact to these companies to just, you know, get that data ransomed, make sure that those operations are locked until the ransom gets paid. What we keep hearing time and time again
3: is that AI in particular is going to make companies more vulnerable, but also give them the armor that they need to be able to prevent against such attacks. Who's winning out in this race to ensure that AI is being adopted at the fastest pace possible?
10: You know, initially I thought that Defenders had a huge head start in this AI race. Mm. So we've been having machine learning techniques for a very long time and a lot of cybersecurity tools. And the only types of AI attacks that we were seeing are something called domain-generating algorithms. And it is exactly what it sounds like, which is just that you spin up a domain domain like www.littleup or you know some difficultdomain.com in order to like stop defender from finding out what all of those evil domains are and blocking them. So those were the only things we were saying and now we're seeing of course with things like dark birth, the ability to craft more, you know, better, phishing mails, uh, etc. And I think that the defenders are losing their advantage. That advantage is slowly but surely slipping towards the adversaries. And we need to kind of make sure that cybersecurity companies are adopting AI measures uh, in their products and that our consumers are buying those products. The likes of, I've certainly
3: heard Brian Moynihan and other CEOs say like the one area that they never are going to sacrifice no matter how many macroeconomic headwinds are is the cyber allocation and the focus on just protecting customers and indeed every stakeholder. Is that something you're seeing ring true, or ultimately have you seen companies worldwide pull back? And what is your answer to that?
10: I do think you're seeing a decline overall in the amount of uh, appetite to spend Mm. on all types of IT things, including cybersecurity, so I'm not seeing that. Actually, I I would love that to be true, let me be clear, Um, but I think that you're seeing CISO budgets shrink as the importance of this role tends to increase. So globally, the trend is not favorable for security. When you look at you know the actual budget incapacity of these uh, chief security officers,
3: one to be keeping a keen eye on. We thank you for breaking down just so expertly what currently is afoot here. Jaya Bloom, chief security officer, who is probably quite busy at super security firm Rapid Seven. Great to have her in the studio. course, formerly known as Twitter, is giving bankers an update on efforts to reinvigorate growth into the platform. CEO Linda Yaccarino saying that it's testing three tiers of premium service, which would allow the company to charge customers different amounts depending on how many ads are shown. Bloomberg's Asia Counts joins us for more. And this all is coming out as they're trying to persuade debt holders in particular that, well, they're managing to grow this business.
11: Exactly. Right. As you all know, the takeover of Twitter was extremely chaotic. $44 billion, which is quite a lot, $13 billion in debt. And so the bankers that help finance a takeover want to see what are they doing to make money, especially after advertising revenue declined 60%. And so that's where these, these advertising tiers come in. Now, it is going to be for premium users. So again, premium, which used to be called Twitter Blue, you pay about $8 for some additional features, like the ability to edit your post and, and things like that. And so X is testing having three different tiers. So basic, standard, and plus, Similar to the way that a Hulu or Netflix operates, the more money you pay, the less ads you're going to see.
3: Okay. Well, talk about how therefore the advertisers are feeling at the moment. Did we get any sense from Linda Yacorino that they're coming back, staying back and paying more?
11: So one of the things that X did say is that advertisers are coming back. So they said in June, about 75% of their top 100 advertisers, so you think of about some big marquee names, about 75% of those were back in June. Now that number is up to 90% but they are spending significantly less Hmm. and even x admitted that and then even by some sort of independent third parties they're estimating it's like 70 80 percent less in some cases so it's definitely not where it was historically and advertising revenue has made up the majority of revenue um, for x traditionally about 80 90 percent of the revenue
3: now going back to the slightly chaotic purchase of this company it's not just debt holders at one time with Elon Musk. It seems as though regulators do too. Can you update us with what's going on with the SEC right now?
11: Yeah, so again, going back to chaotic, right, is, is the word when, when you think about the takeover. When actually before Musk acquired the company, he acquired a stake. So he had about a 9% stake in Twitter at the time. And whenever you acquire over a 5% stake, you have to dispose that to the exchange of commissions, the SEC, within about 10 days. Must disclosed it, but disclosed it about a month later. And so the SEC began to probe and like, why did you disclose this slate? And Must was actually supposed to testify last month, but a couple of days before, like 10 to 15 days before, he started making objections saying maybe we could do a different date or do a different location. And so now they're trying to compel him um, and try to push him to, to testify regarding the, the takeover.
3: Alex Poirot, of course, the attorney for Musk saying, enough is enough. You've had multiple times with the interviews. Asia Counts, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on All Things X. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our own podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. We've got a big week coming up for you next week as well as we head to
1: LA. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology.